This week on Hacker in the Fed, we answer listener questions about finding out a relative is a hacker, applying for a cybersecurity job as a chemical engineer, preparing you for a technical interview. The FBI is a great place to work. Is MFA once every 24 hours too much? And many other fantastic questions from Hacker in the Fed listeners. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner in Naxo. Come and check us out at naxo.com and find out what we're working on and what's going on. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegor. Hector is a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how's it going this week? Oh, man, it's going great. Full of energy. I'm very excited. Uh, can't complain. How about yourself? Good. I'm doing great, and uh, I'm glad to see you made it back from your travels safely. Uh, safely, and and it was a hell of a week. It was very busy, and it wasn't a vacation, so uh, I didn't get to like relax and go to the beach. But nonetheless, it was a great experience. You met a lot of great people, you said, in our pre-show talk. Yeah, man. I met some great folks. I met a whole bunch of people from different industries. You know, I, I got to say, man, it was it was definitely well worth it, for sure. That's a great. So busy week in cybersecurity this week. Uh, I know when people are probably tuning in think we're going to talk about the MGM hack and uh, all the Caesars hack and all the stuff going on in Vegas. Um, but we're not, we're not going to cover that this week. So, uh, it's too fluid. Everybody, uh, the, we don't really know what's going on. The stories are kind of coming out and there's details that aren't really up in the air. And, and it's just, it's too crazy a story right now. Once we get find out the technical details, uh, and that becomes public, then we will uh, dig into that. Does that sound about right to you, Hector? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you and I had a great discussion about this a few minutes ago about how, you know, we've seen different posts from different people. There's information is conflicting. Some of it is some of which seems legitimate. Others seem, um, you know, uh, presumptive. And th to be honest with you, you know, there's just there's just too much happening. And I guess we'll be able to talk about it once there uh, there's more concrete information coming out. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's just you know we're gonna stay away from from it now. Um, but that what does that mean? What are we gonna talk about this episode? Use your questions, Hector. We're all Ooh. the listeners, they write in these great questions to us at questions at Hacker and the Fed. We are going to go through and we are going to purge. We're going to get all the all the questions out there. I'm excited. You know, I love these uh, uh, listener questions episodes, and we haven't done one in a while, so I'm ready for it. All right, Nick, you've got the honors. You're going to have the very first question. So Nick wrote in, hey, guys, long-time listener and love your podcast. What's the smartest out-of-the-box hack you have ever heard of? Wow, that's a great question. Shout out to Nick for the question. Damn, I've seen a lot of interesting hacks. Well, what was one that was really impressive to you? You were like, man, I can't believe they pulled that one off. Uh, I can't believe they got away with it. Or like you found out the technical details and you were just blown away by it. I'll give you an old one and I'll give you a recent one, okay? So I would say an old one, and I say old, I'm talking about a few years back. 
I think that that um, the CC cleaner hack was pretty interesting. You know, it ended up being like a supply chain attack after the fact, but the initial entry um, was a mix of like social engineering and password stuffing, and and the attackers got into like a the, 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 I would say the developers network or developers local network. From there, they were able to move laterally and they get access to the internal um, source version controls. Um, then from there, they were able to you know, learn about the distribution and, and development process or operations for the CC Cleaner tool. And then once they had all this information and they, they, they kind of engaged all these different types of reconnaissance, then they put together the supply chain attack, which was, we're going to modify the installer to also install um, some of our uh, backdoor code. And we're, we don't want to target all two point whatever million you know, uh, uh, monthly downloads or uh, downloaders. What we want to do is focus on uh, computers that have a specific uh, domain, uh, uh, I would say, configured into its, uh, its, its, its network configuration. Now, with doing that, they, you know, again, they, they came in from the outside. They, they used different techniques to, to get into where they needed to get to. They had to learn about the internal operations and, and, and development cycle and process. And then they also had to start to, uh, you know, look at the source code for CC Cleaner and the installer, backdoor it, and then target specific targets from industries like Intel and MSI. Um, fantastic. Uh, well, not fantastic for the victims, obviously not. But in terms of like strategy and, and um, execution, you know, those attackers really um, just they, they went all in. OK. And as for the recent one, there was a breach of retool. That was a story that. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward, but it's, it's interesting, right? The attackers were able to get access to uh, retool services by means of a uh, engineer who had saved his Okta or MFA, not Okta, but MFA configuration through the Google Authenticator Sync. And yeah, by having their engineer sync their MFA config to the Google Authenticator Sync servers, um, the attacker was able to compromise a personal email account and then move laterally into the corporate account. Pretty interesting attack path. And now, honestly, um, you're going to have companies start looking at whether or not their employees are syncing or storing important or sensitive codes um, you know, in these third-party synchronization services. So I hope, Nick, that answered your question. That, that you know, gave you some, um, some, some solid stories to look into. Like I said, one is recent. The other one is older. Maybe the older story might give you more context and more uh, technical details if you look into it i do love the cc cleaner attack uh you know that it just the you know the the genius of some of the stuff they did in there was pretty cool i think the coolest hack i ever uh you know knew the details about it was classified i can't talk about it so uh unfortunately i can't get into too much of it but uh but really really interesting stuff and how they did it and the technical details and how they did and hopefully one day all that stuff comes out but other hacks, I mean, I always love the Ashley Madison hack. I mean, uh, I, I, I use it in all my speeches, and I haven't found a victim of it yet, so I'm not positive <laughs> it, if it's ever happened. No one's ever raised their hand and claimed to be a victim of the Ashley Madison hack. So Nick goes on, and he asks, what would you do if you found out someone related to you were committing hacking-related crimes? And this one comes up a lot for me. I get asked this one quite a bit, you know, because so my son is in college, and he's studying computer science, and he's a good kid. Uh, I could never, you know, picture him committing crime or ever getting involved in any sort of criminal activities. But, you know, what if he messes up and, and goes a little bit further than he's supposed to do doing something or looking something up? 
I think people are asking, if they're asking this question, Nick, I'll read it real into it. Am I going to dime him out? Am I going to call the cops on him? No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, you know, parent him the best I can and and, and teach him that what he's done is wrong. But man, I, I'm not going to, you know, put a, a mark on his record um, just because, you know, what it is. Now, if he's hurt people, um, you know, it's a different measurement. But, you know, computer crimes most of the times don't hurt people. Um, what about you, Hector? Would you, would you, uh, what would you do if you found out that one of the girls was a hacker? Yeah. I mean, look, one of the girls, a cousin, a relative, you're my neighbor. You know, I would, I would really sit them down and, and talk to them. Like, look, this is not the path. You know, you are on a good, I would say you have a great opportunity to turn whatever skills you have currently into, um, a career long or successful career long path. Um, Take that opportunity because what's going to happen to you is what's going to happen to me. Eventually, you're going to get caught, especially if you're here in the United States. And especially if, you know, you, you, you have a good grasp of operational or personal security. And plus, you know, remember that email we received not that long ago from uh, the person in, in I, would, I forgot what country, but they're currently active in the ransomware scene. Remember that guy? Vietnam, yeah. So Vietnam, yeah. One of the points that he made, one of the points that he addressed was the fact that Yes, I may be doing this, and yes, I may make, I may, I may be making some money out of it. But the reality is that I don't sleep comfortable, right? Or I may not want, I may not be able to sleep comfortable over time. Um, and and realistically, if they ever identify uh, they being you know foreign governments he's attacking, he may not ever be able to travel. So he'll be stuck in in this country. I mean, I'm, I know Vietnam is beautiful, but eventually, you know, if he ever wants to like move on with his life, he's probably going to be stuck. You know, and, and be limited. Yeah, we, I mean, we talked about last week that Russian guy who left Russia to go to on a holiday with his family and got arrested. Now he's doing nine years in, in uh, the United States. Yeah, I mean, look, eventually it catches up with you. You know, I've you know, and, and the one thing I'll say is like this is not the time for that. If you if you care about your family and you care about building a career and doing something with your life, um, you have a great opportunity right now. This applies to everybody listening to this conversation. Being a being a black hat is not cool. I, you know, at one point I thought I was cool. So I realized, well, I was just being a kid. Sometimes you need to just move on and grow up. So yeah, I would not dime them out, but I would definitely definitely speak with them and, and you know give them a reality check. Just like Chris gave me a reality check when he knocked on my door. So so Nick finishes up with I work in a major worldwide telecom company. Uh, a number of months ago, I managed to move laterally in our our parents' companies blank network i'm gonna leave it blank just in case nick is trackable uh where we we have minimal access uh i was able to run powershell and other tools as admin without using any malicious methods Ouch. yeah i reported my findings after showing a trove of information and i found out and i found and i even had ability to ssh into their switches storage and other hardware as files are stored in public shared drives uh, they didn't seem thankful in finding uh, in my findings, and this only made me dig more. What do you think of companies who don't take security serious? Um, well, it sounds like, Nick, in your first off, I I'm sure they are a little thankful. Um, they're probably not so happy you move laterally and all that, but I'm sure it's embarrassing. I, I think Hector and I have made our points in the last few weeks. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes, go back and look at that. Companies that don't take cybersecurity seriously are screwing us all over. Um, we talk, we've, we've ranted about it the last few weeks that, you know, Hector and I and all the listeners, we do a lot of things to take care of our own cybersecurity. Um, but then we also pay companies, third party vendors or um, companies like our insurance company, where we have to give certain information over to them and we expect them to store and secure that information. Uh, and they're not. 
And uh, we're seeing a lot more class action lawsuits uh, coming out about that. I mean, as we record this, you know, it's pretty fresh off the MGM hack. Uh, Caesars, the the other uh, gambling casino out in Las Vegas um, commodity, they came out and said that they were involved in a ransomware a couple weeks ago. Well, they've already been hit by a class action lawsuit. So, you know, these companies are going to be punished by the regulators. They're going to be punished by their, their clients. Uh, they're going to be punished by, um, you know, everyone, every which way. You know, the ransomware guys, they're getting hit in all different directions. So, um, you know, uh, we, we do not appreciate companies that don't take cybersecurity seriously. 100%. I agree with Chris here. Um, we are in 2023. We've discussed all of these topics individually or collectively for the last 20 years minimum. If you have a if if you feel like your company has a flat network and you're able to move laterally at will with admin privileges and getting access to things that you shouldn't be able to access, yeah, that is a major problem. And once an attacker is able to compromise one workstation, they'll be able to move laterally internally, get access to routing networks. Um, you know, if there's no segmentation or VLANs, um, you know, they're and, and they're able to access files and public shared drives. Yeah, that's a, that's a major issue. So let's look at it from the perspective from the security team. They received a, a note from you or maybe a report, depending on how you how you uh, provide them the details. And, you know, one of the things that you have to understand is that at, at that point, if they don't have uh, a policy in place to deal with those internal reports, then, um, you know, it's probably up in the air. I'm not saying they didn't take it seriously, it probably means that, you know, that email is sitting dormant somewhere. Maybe there was some communication. And maybe they even ask, they're asking each other, well, why was, you know, Nick kind of going through our network, right? So you have to be very careful. That you, you do not go beyond the scope of your job. Now, if it ever comes up in conversation, if you're ever having a business meeting and, you know, people are showing concern about security, then, yeah, you might be able to kind of discuss some of those findings or maybe with your uh, the people up top, right, upstream, because um, the one thing you don't want to do is do an impromptu pen test on your own network, and then you have the FBA knocking on your door as an insider threat, right? Or they're looking at you like an insider threat. You don't want that, Nick. So be very mindful of your activities on the internal uh, internal side, especially if you're not in, in the security department. Okay, buddy? Yeah, that's excellent advice, Hector. I, I should have covered that. I didn't think of, uh, of him getting trouble for what he was doing. I got you, brother. Listen, man. Come on. I got your back. So next question is, uh, Jesse writes, I'm a college senior in chemical engineering with a hobby in InfoSec. I've only worked with my own virtual machines and on platforms like Hack the Box. I may pivot to the industry as a sort of an obsession. Applying for jobs outside of InfoSec, would, would you include that experience on your resume? I think it may demonstrate a desirable mentality for problem solving in any role and communicate technical literacy. However, I don't want to give potential employers the impression that I am a malicious actor or would behave irresponsibly at their company. Any advice you have would appreciate it. I'm a fan of the show. Thanks in advance. What do you think about putting uh, experience outside of InfoSec? Well, it is a it, it, I, first of all, thank you, Jesse, for the question. Fantastic. I think this is a great one because I think that as organizations mature the security programs, they, wait, they may want to look at hiring people, even if the job role itself is not in security, right? They may want to start hiring people that have some basic concepts or understanding of security in general, because it probably means that they're going to save some money on training and or they may be able to trust you more um, in following their internal policies, okay? 
Um, I don't think that if you, if, okay, let's say your resume is, is for like a, you know, a, a junior developer or let's say you're, you're like a project manager, right? Having that listed, uh, having those, those uh, interests and accomplishments in cybersecurity training um, will take you very far, believe me. So I, I, I don't think, I can't see it as a negative. Chris, can you? I, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. No, and I, I've read the question a couple of times, and I still don't understand where I, it says, I don't want to give potential employees the impression that I'm a malicious actor or would behave irresponsibly at their company. I mean, I like a well-rounded candidate. When I'm looking to hire someone, you know, if you have other interests outside of InfoSec, if you're not just a robot of cybersecurity and you do other things and have, you know, other studies, you know, I, I got an undergraduate degree in pre-med and a graduate degree in computer science. Like, I, I, I'm not, you know... I like the the being well rounded aspect of it, so I don't see where that that message would go to an employer at all. And I'm I'm trying to look at it. I mean, I own you know a, a company, um, I own Naxo, and you know I can't I can't picture someone with a resume that you're describing and me initially thinking you're a bad actor. Exactly right. I mean, I, I had a great conversation this week while I was uh, abroad, or uh, or I was traveling, and the conversation was with a, a couple folks that you know run HR for a business. And their concern was, um, you know, if we're hiring for remote, how can we trust uh, potential applicants? And I gave them an example. I said, look, we've, have, we've, we've read stories that we've seen situations where bad actors um, pretended to be legitimate potential employees or applicants, and they turned out to be like, you know, part of the Lazarus Group or something, right? Part of the North Korean, um, you know, uh, organization there. And so, yes, there is concern that could be, um, a risk, at least from the HR perspective, but that's where they come in and they have to do validation. They have to do, they have to do their due diligence in identifying who you are and verifying and validating your your background. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I think that uh, you know it, it could be seen as risk can can be seen as risky from like uh, uh, maybe an HR perspective for remote workers, but if it's something local, I think you're fine. So the next question comes from Renee. Hello, Chris and Hector. Huge fan of the show and day one listener. Well, thank you, Renee. I appreciate that. Uh, I wanted to ask for career advice on joining the FBI. Currently, I work in IT auditing and studying cyber forensics and infosec. I'm 25, was a Division I football player, maintained great physical shape, and also enjoy firearms as a hobby. In my current private sector position, I really dislike all of the bureaucracy involved in a big company and feel I'm not really impacting anyone meaningful. It was always been my dream of mine to be an agent. And after listening to the show, it seems it might not be the most illustrious job I've dreamed of. I had a professor in college who was an agent for 20 years and we got along great. And he left a very positive impact. He worked in white collar crime, uh, specifically fraud. Um, as your experience as an agent was specifically in cyber, I wanted to ask your thoughts. I would love to be able to stop criminals from exploiting hospitals, companies, and especially cyber criminals in tracking and feel it would be, you know, sorry, trafficking, uh, and feel it would be the best place to do so at the FBI. So, Renee, I read your question and I actually felt very, very bad. I never wanted anyone that wants to join the FBI or be part of, you know, federal law enforcement um, or any law enforcement. I wouldn't want to talk them out of it. If it's your calling, it's your calling and that's what you want to do. Um, you know, the FBI is a big place uh, and it has, you know, it does have bureaucracies like a big company. Um, you know, there, there's... Uh, 
quasi-military type feelings with like seniority you know it's only really the academy but but you know he has that feeling it's nothing like you know it's not like the military but it has you know there is a hierarchy as you're going through and you're a trainee and all the way going up through the ranks um and everybody has a different experience my roommate and i had two different experiences there were guys in my class who came out of uh came out of the academy and they went to a small to medium-sized field office and they were on the SWAT team the first day they got to their office wow. um, whereas i go to new york and you're put on a two-year training program before you even get on your squad um so you learn all of new york they put you on you you start off on like the applicant squad where you do like other fbi applications um i got to a background investigation for a um, supreme court justice um, and then from there, you go to SO, which is surveillance. So you learn to drive around the city and follow people and, and do that sort of thing. Then you go to the NIOC, which is the New York Operations Center, and you take phone calls and people walk in and report crime. Um, and then you go to each one of the five different uh, disciplines in the New York office to learn from them. And then you end up on your squad. Um, I got fast forwarded when I left the NIOC. I went to straight to cyber because um, they had a bunch of big cyber cases come in and wanted to get a few of us put in place. So I skipped that the the second half of the rotation. But again, join the FBI. It's a great place. Um, I, I do not want to talk people out of it. Um, I hope I've not, you know, I, I, I love to be audienced with the audience. I love to tell you, you know, my experiences and what I went through, um, good and bad. I, I think you're going to have that at any place. I was at the FBI for little over nine years i don't you know i wouldn't want to take talk anybody out of it but in nine years you're going to have some bad experiences um hector do i do i i try to come across of how much i loved being in the fbi and being part of the fbi I, it's not my full identity i mean if i had to pick one title that was my identity it would be father um probably follow, followed up by husband but uh um and third probably friend uh so you know fbi is not even in the top three but still, I loved my time there, and I hope it comes across. Have you, have you experienced me any different? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I listen. I, I, I first of all, I'm your friend, but also um, I always try to 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 keep these conversations or, or look at these conversations objectively, even your opinions. And then, and sometimes you and I don't agree with things, right? Um, and I'll tell you right off the bat that I think that you know you've you've definitely spoken very well of the FBI. I don't think you've ever really said anything bad. But and you're 100 percent right. Just like any big business, whether it's corporate or in government, you're going to run into situations. That's part of life. We all go through that. And, um, and just judging by this question, I mean, look, he's, he's young. He has his degree. He was a Division I football player, which is not easy to get to. Um, and he seems very motivated to, to help people. So I think if that's what, it, you know, and this goes to Renee, if this is what you want to do, my friend, uh, definitely approach it and definitely go ahead and move forward because it seems like you're you're probably a good candidate. So yeah, Renee, feel free to reach out back out to me at uh, questions at hackerinthefed.com. Lo- would be more than happy to have a one-on-one conversation with you on Zoom or on the, on a phone call. Uh, tell you about my experiences with the FBI. Um, I'm, I, it'll be what same thing you hear in the show, but you know whatever I can do to help uh, and get, prepare you. Uh, to become a, a good agent. So, yeah, it, it's great. Cyber's great. You're never going to work on cases any better than when you're in the FBI. And once you have a few years in, um, you know, you can make your own cases. You can go out and find a problem that you want to solve, a crime being committed, and open up an investigation and, you know, go down the full path. So, highly recommend it. So, um, but Hector, uh, Renee had a question for you too. He said, uh, how would you recommend learning more about attacks, penetration, exploits uh, in a legal manner? 
Yeah, no, that is a great question. I mean, when I started back in the days, we didn't have a lot of guys in, in, from my era. We didn't have the opportunities that you guys have today. Um, you know, YouTube really wasn't a thing. Um, search engines were very uh, uh, basic, and the algorithms you guys have access to now, you know, weren't really a thing back then. And so, and then also you had you had things like over the wire, which was like you know hacking the box in a way. But, you know, it, it wasn't enough sometimes. And so, yes, we would break into systems and, and kind of learn about these systems in order to, um, you know, learn about different concepts, right? Or learn how to be a systems administrator without having to acquire a very expensive Unix system um, and license. So here's what you have, right? Continue with Hack the Box. Continue with Try Hack Me. Um, if you have a couple of dollars to spare, you know, offensive security, the guys that, that, uh, published the OSCP certification, they have a very cool program called like offensive one. I forgot the exact name. You go to a website, you can see it where they give you for like a, a set price. They'll give you access to a year of virtual machines that you can break into. They'll give you, uh, access to take the certification test. I think you get like two tries with OSCP. You got, uh, the Kali Linux certification, and of course, the Wi-Fi pen testing one. In my information might be a bit dated, so feel free to go to the site and check it out. Um, you also have a bunch of certif certifications on Discora uh, for Google Security, Microsoft Security, Cisco, and Oracle. You have a ton of resources. And then finally, if you don't feel like you know playing with a box, then you could also go on YouTube and, and look up like IPSEC, I-P-P-SEC, S-E-C. Um, that guy's awesome. And he he walks you through these virtual machines and, and how he found vulnerabilities and his methodology. Um, you can't lose, right? So you're in a great spot um, to, to continue learning in, in either free or very cheap. Um, and all the resources are out there for you, right? So if you have any specific questions, definitely just send us an email again and I'll, I'll try to answer those for you. What you're going to find important, my friend, is that you want to keep up to date with the latest InfoSec news. So on Twitter and Mastodon, you're going to find a bunch of researchers constantly posting their opinions or posting research. That stuff, trust me, if it, may, if it doesn't make sense to you today, it's going to make sense eventually, right? And it's going to be cast in your mind. And, you know, one day it's just all going to click and it's going to, it's going to put you in a really good place. And then finally, penetration testing and vulnerability assessments and uh, all of that good stuff. I mean, you already seem to be working IT auditing. So you, you have an introduction. Um, and you also studied uh, cyber forensic and infosec. So I think you're in a good place to continue with the current process, plus whatever else I gave you here. Um, and yeah, and I hope that helps, my friend. So M writes in, hey, Chris and Hector, I've been a fan of your show for a while now and wanted to share my appreciation for your insight into the cyber world. Chris, I work in the Bureau, uh, and the Bureau is FBI for the short, it's lingo for the, for the FBI, so we call it the Bureau, the service, the secret service, uh, and so on. But I work in the Bureau in your old office as an SOS. An SOS is a staff operations specialist. Um, I've never worked in cyber um, but I do have a master's in cybersecurity and recently got a, a SEC plus cert. It's always awesome hearing your experiences as an agent, and it's refreshing to hear from someone in the Bureau who actually knows what they're talking about. Well, thank you, Emma. I appreciate that one. Um, I'm not sure if I want to go the agent route or change things up and do something cyber related in the private sector, but it's uplifting to know that there's there are companies like yours out there that all allow for more opportunities for people from the Bureau. 
well, I, that is, I, I guess it's not a question, Em, but I thank the kind words. And so an SOS or the staff operations specialist sector um, is someone on the each squad and they do like a lot of deep research. Um, like they would come up with, you know, attribution for like different groups. Hey, I'm seeing, you know, this pattern on the squad. Uh, the guys are investigating this hacker. Um, he's doing, you know, X, Y, Z. I've seen old hacks like that, that had the same methodology. Maybe that guy was involved in that too. Um, we had a, a great SOS in our squad who put together a lot of stuff that we used, uh, for, um, Anarchaos and, and going through and finding different things that he may have been involved in. So, but uh, M, whatever route you're going, great. Uh, the, there are, you know, good private sector companies. Um, you know, the best one I know of is Naxo, obviously. That's uh, right. <laughs> so, I mean, we do. We hire a lot of foreign law, uh, uh, former law enforcement because, you know, what we do, uh, we do, you know, sort of, you know, FBI investigator without a badge uh, to help companies, you know, investigate incidents or what they happen. Um, we do a lot of helping for, I still with federal law enforcement when, you know, uh, they can't, you know, need some help figuring out something technical and getting past a barrier. We do a lot of that work. So yeah, you know, if you, you know, check us out at Naxo.com and you can find out, you know, job postings that we have out right now, um, cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of good stuff. So M, thank you for your kind words and, uh, you know, keep enjoying the view. I, I miss those days. So enjoy it while you're there. So aside from former FBI guys, right, or, or, or law enforcement, if there was, um, you know, like let's say an equivalent from a different country, so United Kingdom or Australia or, or any of your like uh, partners abroad, right? Uh, is there any specific uh, law enforcement agency that you would hire from if they moved to the United States? I, I mean, if we went in the private world, I mean, we could hire them. They could live overseas still. Um, I mean, there's certain things, you know, there's, there's certain things we work on that we're not allowed to export certain technologies. But, you know, the, the, other, the other things. But, I mean, are you talking about, like, are there really good cyber investigators overseas? Yeah. Like, I was trying to see if there's, like, any, any agencies that you thought were pretty cool and you would hire from if you had the chance. The Netherlands has some really good guys. They're doing some really cool things over there. The Germans, BKA, they, they have some really good operations going on. Um, those are the first two that come to mind that are really, really strong in cyber. Obviously, the, the, the Met... Um, in uh in england they've got some good stuff going on but but yeah there's a few places over there that, that, that they've got some really good investigators nice cool thank you kevin writes in hi chris and hector first thank you so much for responding to my first question i was feeling very discouraged because of my arrest and reading a lot of negative stuff on reddit in regards to an arrest being on someone's background and how it may hinder me from getting hired for those that don't know just gets up kevin got arrested but was not convicted uh, of anything um and the charge kind of went away uh and was worried about applying to cybersecurity. After hearing uh, Chris and Hector's responses, uh, it has given me that passion interpretation I first had. Thank you. I listened to a podcast. They recently did an episode on Jeremy Hanneman and talked about Sabu, Hector. Uh, I was wondering if you and Hector can listen to the podcast if you have the time and give your input on what you can. Uh, I know that you may not be able to share much, but any input from your end would be amazing. Uh, thank you in advance for your response. Can't wait to hear the next episode. Um, I know you read it. You read the the podcast, didn't you, Hector? Yeah, yeah. I read the transcript for the podcast, and uh, it, was, it was actually pretty good. The guy, the author, um, I would say the podcast author uh, or host, uh, very good writer, um, pretty decent at research, too. He did a very good job at kind of telling the story. 
there were some things in there that I'm not really sure where he got from that were very wrong. I'm not admonishing him by no means. Um, I think it was an interesting story. If I was an outsider completely, uh, I, th- I would say, wow, that's that's an interesting story that I just heard, you know? But yeah, there were some things in there I was like, wow, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> they were completely wrong? Nothing? It had no association with the case whatsoever? Yeah, it was like personal things about me, and I'm assuming that they probably read that in books. You know, there were some books that were published around that time. Some of it were, some of them were good. Others were just completely uh, just out of left field. Um, like there was one section where they mentioned that I had an incident in school, incident in school, which is true. Um, I used to, I used to help um, some of the teachers with uh, tech support or the computers. There was a computer lab that was, um, uh, uh, I would say, delegated for, you know, some of the some of the students that that were you know, in trouble, right? Like I would say the students that were having problems with their, with their academics. And so they had their own classes and they had their own computer lab. And the computer lab was like really run down, man. It was like a junkyard for the computers that were just half dead and, and so on. So I, I offered to help them. And, um, you know, one day I came in with my tools, which is basically a screwdriver and a couple modems or whatever. And the security guard just went crazy. And it was one of those security guards that was from the NYPD. You know, some schools have that. And uh, this guy, man, he was treating me like a perp. Like, he was like six foot six. He was a big guy. And he was barking at me like he was a drill sergeant. And I'm like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just here for free to help you guys deal with computer problems. And, yeah, it became a whole big thing. And and so in the podcast, the the author said that I wrote a, a pamphlet and started hanging out the pamphlet as a, a means of protest. And I don't know where the where the freak that came from. Did I write like a complaint? Or did I have, did I make a complaint with the with the principal? Absolutely, because I felt like, you know, I'm over here. I'm I'm 14 years old and I'm getting chewed out, um, you know, by a grown man over something that uh, you know I could understand his risk and concern, but it just it was just beyond the scope of his job at that point. Uh, but pamphlets and protesting and, and all that extra stuff, I have no idea where that came from. And that was just one of the things. There was another one about the the wrestler that I chose. He said that the wrestler was like flamboyant and you know all this, all this extra stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The guy Sabu never even spoke. You know, the, the wrestler that I named myself at, named myself after, he was quiet. He never even said a word. So you know, there were there were things like that that was just kind of just completely random to me. But and I'm assuming he got that from like maybe a, a book or something. So, but it was good. It was a good. It was a good listen. Good read. I'm not going to suggest it. I didn't read it. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't listen to. It. I didn't read it. So I'm not going to suggest yeah. something I didn't read. So I got you, Lucia. She asked, "Greetings, Chris and Hector. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. Well, thank you, Lucia. Uh, I've been listening since the Genesis episode one. I appreciate you keeping the listeners current with relevant in- infosec news. Your stories are uh, inspirational and positive, and intriguing. I was also inspired by you too. I actually enrolled and completed a cybersecurity boot camp." Well, I'm very proud of you, Lucia. I'm glad uh, we were able to kind of push you in that direction. What do you suggest could be really prepare me for the details and the technical questions during the interview? Hector, what what would be best preparing for a cybersecurity interview? That's a great question because it really depends on the person that's interviewing you. They could be HR and non-technical. Well, let, let's go from be- let's go from a technical angle. Let's let's just do the technical angle on this one. Let's say she put in her resume, got past HR's checklist, and now she's in for a technical interview. Sure. Okay. So now you have like a security engineer that's interviewing you, and if it's a small company, maybe even you're maybe even speaking with like the CISO directly, right? Um, okay. Cool. So you know they're gonna kind of ask you for your background and and. Get an understanding as to core concepts that you understand, 
They may ask you technical questions that may be trick questions or questions that you may not need to know, um, but should know. Like, they may ask you, like, hey, what's a three-way handshake? Or what's the difference between TCPIP? Uh, or they may ask you something like, so, hey, if you're doing a port scan and, you know, you're not you're not getting any responses back from the port scan, meaning that it's, you know, let's say you're using the tool Nmap. Well, first of all, what tool would you use, right? They would ask you that. And they say, yeah, we'll use Nmap for port scan. Okay, cool. So if you're port scanning, um, you know, uh, uh, let's say a, a sequence of servers, uh, let's say, you know, a C-class or something. Oh, by the way, do you know what a C-class is, right? So they'll, they'll hit you with these random technical questions. And then back to the main question. Okay, so if you're scanning a C-class full of IPs and you're getting zero responses back and all the hosts come back is down, what does that indicate to you? And, you know, your answer could be, well, it could mean that um, these servers may have some sort of firewall or they may have ICMP disabled. So what we could probably do is ask Nmap not to use pings prior to scanning, and we'll check that out. We, it could also be a bad scoping. Maybe the IP range where they were scanning is not correct. Um, so yeah, so there's going to be stuff like that. Now, you know, if, if it's if it's if it's beyond like an entry level job, and you know, I can't see them asking any crazy questions on, a, on like an entry level job position interview. But if they do go beyond their own scope, and they ask you something like, "Hey, so what would happen if you found?" Uh, you know, a blue keeps a server with blue keep uh, vulnerability, um, you know, available to you. You know, what tool would you use to exploit it? Well, I would use Metasploit with their with their blue keep module. Okay, now let's say you get on that machine. What what would you do then, right? So that they may they may want to inquire on your methodology. So what I would want you to do, Lucia, is you know look at pen testing methodologies, and you can find that online. If you just type in pen test methodology to Google, you're gonna find some great resources. They're like maybe the top 10 hits, all great resources on what a pen test should look like and, you know, what kind of vulnerabilities to target. And if it's a Windows environment, here's what you do. Um, but really what you want to look at, and I'm going to I'm gonna send Chris like a, a pen testers methodology link. I think it's a good start for you. If you got that down pat and you have a good understanding of what a methodology is supposed to look like for a pen test, then I think that you're going to do very well in the interview if those kind of questions pop up, right? So... Um, yeah, I think you're gonna kill it. You can do absolutely well. And if, like I said, if it's an entry level position, um, and you're you're already doing cybersecurity boot camps, and you're playing, we play with like Try Hack Me or similar platforms, I think you're gonna be in a good spot. Yeah, yeah, Lucia, research some um, uh, places to find answers to questions, and have those. If somebody tries to ask you a question and you don't know the answer, don't bullshit your way because when you try to bullshit a technical person, they're gonna they're gonna know it very quickly. Uh, be like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I have these resources that I go to, um, and I, you know, I try X, Y, and Z, and and those places normally have the right answers for me for me to look up. Um, so, you know, while I don't have that knowledge, you know, I, I know a place to obtain that knowledge easily. 100%. Lucia goes on in closing. Chris, thank you for your prior FBI service. As a retired law enforcement officer, I commend you and continue your service to the community via your podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service for being a law enforcement officer. Lucia, I appreciate it. And Hector, uh, thank you for making the switch from villain to hero uh, and now using your superpowers for good. I admire your passion for the cybersecurity community. You're truly an inspiration to folks of all walks of life. Well, thank you so much uh, for the kind words. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. I really appreciate you. So Lucia included something, Hector. Maybe we'll just talk about it right here. Um, she said that, you know, we you know how we're giving away things for Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. We're going to give away some prizes. She says one of the things we might want to think about giving away is having a listener come on the show. Uh, what do you think about that? That would be dope. I'm with it. Yeah. 
have them come on and kind of interview us or uh, ask cybersecurity questions. And, you know, uh, I think it'll be fun. So maybe that's one of the things we give away. So, uh, you know, it'd have to, you know, in that specific, you know, contest that we're giving away, you know, I, I'd ask you not to join unless it's something you'd be willing to come on the show and do. But I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I'm for it. And we, you know, we could definitely coordinate that for uh, especially October. October is a, a cybersecurity awareness month, right? So let's uh, see what we can do with that. So, yeah, we're going to have a couple, few different contests uh, for people. We're just kicking around those ideas. And uh, maybe one of the giveaways will be a listener coming on the show. So that would be great. Awesome. I'm with it. All right, Hector, the next question is from G05C. I don't know what sort of name that is, but uh, obviously, uh, he, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's his name. Or That's her a name. cool pseudonym. I'm okay. with it. All right. Hi, Hector and Chris. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your stories. I love the energy and the fact that you two are real-life friends uh, where one is law main character and the other one's more rebellious. I don't know who bit. they're talking about. I think I'm I the th rebellious one. I think so, too. <laughs> I am a total square. Okay? Exactly. Let you guys know. Exactly. Um, I can listen to them all day long uh, as I'm a CNC operator. That's a pretty cool job. Very uh, cool. This message is not security-related, but still important topic. Uh Maybe even more. For context, I am from Central Europe and living in the UK at the moment. Uh, you said something interesting in the last episode, Duck Hunt. Uh, it may have been a couple episodes now. Um, you said that you need a credit card or a check to make payments in the US. I mean, are you not using debit cards? Are you saying that in the US, everyone is taking credit each time they are buying something or they're paying it off uh, sometimes later? The idea seems crazy to me. Debit cards and credit cards are not synonymous. People in Europe are paying with debit cards for day-to-day -day purchases, which are transferring money directly from your account to the vendor. No credit involved. Credit cards in the UK are mostly used for bigger purchases like uh, for a loan or just improving your credit score to take a mortgage. In Poland, checks went out, out of use almost completely in the early 2000s. Use of credit cards in this country dropped last year uh, to previous. And banking, there is one of the most advanced in Europe. I'm trying to understand world economics for the past few years, but this information gives me a completely new perspective. So in my world, this is my world, and I think this is mostly the people I know all use credit cards uh, here in the United States. So I think the part we're talking about was using a credit card to attach to an easy pass. So an easy pass is a toll to go through a toll uh, in the United States. You, you drive through, you don't even slow down. It just takes a picture and it has a radio frequency to this device. Uh, it's connected to your license plate and your credit card's attached to this device. So you just pay the toll as you go through. I use credit cards for nearly every purchase I do. Um, I hardly ever use cash um, if I don't have to. And I never use a debit card. Uh, in my life, a debit card is only used to get cash out of an ATM, and I don't think I've used a debit card in probably probably seven or eight years. So what advantage, people, you're wondering, G05C, what advantage is this to me? So a debit card, you're right, is connected directly to my bank account, meaning that if someone gets access to that debit card, they have access to my entire bank account which, you know, whatever I carry in that, that for that month, you know, to pay the bills uh, can be substantial sometimes. So whereas I have a credit card and I have that tied to my phone as far as I get a text message anytime that any one of my credit cards is used, 
uh, for any sort of purchase online or anything. I get the full amount uh, where it was purchased from, full details. I, it, most of the times, it's what I'll be standing in line and I'll swipe my credit card to pay at a grocery store, and it comes to my phone as soon as it it, it goes through. Um, that allows me to monitor the spending. And so, if a weird charge comes through, then it only one comes through. Because uh, as soon as I see a one that I didn't do or my wife didn't do, I know to call the credit card and cut it off. And the credit card uh, automatically protects me. Um, I have protections so that if I, you know, if there's a bad charge, there can only be so many. Um, the debit cards, I, like I said, I haven't used it in so many years. I don't know if they offer those same protections. Uh, and it's a direct tie to the money. And once the money goes, I think it's kind of, you know, maybe in the U.S., there's a, you get a couple hours or a few days to you can pull money back. But if it goes to a foreign bank, I don't think it does. Uh, Hector, what's your experiences with debit cards, credit cards? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, right? So I don't use debit cards for anything that's, you know, that's day to day. Um, maybe as an emergency, if my credit card is lost or something's going on with the credit card, um, then I'll use my debit card or I'll just go to the ATM and pull the cash out and then pay in cash. Uh, I think that we have a lot of protections here when it comes to credit cards. I've been in situations where, you know, I've given uh, maybe uh, a second card to a family member and they use it somewhere. They got skims. I'll get a message to my phone like, hey, someone just tried to buy, you know, a pair of sneakers on Nike.com or whatever. And I'm, I'm able to immediately call the credit card, um, you know, a company and say, hey, this is not right. We need to stop this and blah, blah, blah. And then they'll reverse the charge. With debit, it's like, yes, they'll reverse the charge, but they have to do an investigation. It's a whole big process. And do they charge Maybe you for that sometimes? Isn't there like a bank fee sometimes to reverse those charges? There, there could be a bank fee for those charges. That's, uh, absolutely. But if you are a legitimate victim, for example, and you, you know, you do a police report and all that, then they may waive those charges. But... Each bank is different, and we have a we have foreign banks here as well. They may have different uh, policies around those scenarios. So just to avoid all of the melodrama, I'll use a card. Worst case scenario, the card is breached somewhere or they got skimmed somewhere. I'm able to to mitigate the the actual damage, and whatever money I have in the bank for bills stays there, right? So that's my approach as well. And maybe in Europe is different, but uh, I think that uh, G05C, one idea, one, one pro research project you could do for yourself when you're uh, when you have some free time is to see, you know, what is the percentage of of successful credit card skims and scams in, in Europe versus what they are in the U.S. They're probably in line with each other, but, um, you know, you might get some data around debit card use and debit card scams and skims. And if you feel like, uh, it, you know, it seems like it's more prevalent there, then, yeah, you could probably use credit cards. But again you know, for each of their own, right? So the next one, Hector, Chris writes in, hi, Hector and Chris, I'd like to start with some words of encouragement for those trying to get into the industry. This is great, Chris. I, we appreciate that. Uh, I started in the service desk role one year ago after switching careers at age 41. I put everything into doing the best job I could whilst letting my team supervisors know I was interested in cybersecurity and studying CompTIA's Security Plus in my own time. Over time, I was given more involvement in security and re related projects. One year on, and I'm now working full-time in our cybersecurity department with overall responsibility of those security projects. Very nice. Yes. I believe the attitude of enthusiasm and self-improvement are the only essential tools for getting where you want to go. Completely agree, Chris. Um, we have a number of mobile devices we secure. What do you see are responsible compromise for re-authenticating for users to access corporate apps and data. We currently require MFA once every 24 hours. Uh, I'm wary of making users 
enter credentials so often whenever they are asked as it can be done sometimes they don't do without even questioning it users are already required to provide a six digit pin or face id to access their phone uh, before being asked for mfa to access corporate data and apps a fantastic show uh, which has been both inspirational and educational your website reminds me of the 90s. Please do not change it. Well, thank you, Chris, for the website. Um, we are going to put a counter on it. That yes. Each time someone visits, it's going to click up. Um, I think <laughs> you have to have, you definitely have to have a birthday that starts with like 1970 or 1980 to understand what the hell we're talking about when we talk about yeah, I think a, so. a counter. But Hector, what do you think about uh, requiring MFA once every 24 hours? I think it's a little excessive. Yeah, it is excessive. And, and you know, I've dealt with it, especially with clients where they'll give me access to an account for testing. And, you know, I have to do work for them for two, three weeks and I have to log in every day. I'm logged out. If they're sending me emails to that account, then, you know, it becomes a mess. It's a bit of a drain, but it really depends on several factors. It really depends on your risk appetite, your businesses risk appetite. It also depends on the industry you're in and what kind of regulations that you have to follow. Remember, if especially if you're a publicly traded company and you're in healthcare or fintech or whatever, and you require, and, and you're a part of a state that has uh, a stringent uh, breach notification laws and cyber insurance or policy requirements, there may be, you know, many variables that really make up the reason for your current policy. If it is a company device that's managed by your organization, by your company, you know, you may be able to, to kind of play around with that. But again, it really depends on the, all, of, all of those variables plus more. And it really depends on, you know, if your, your employees are traveling a lot, you know, the one thing you don't want to do is for an employee to, to, to lose their laptop or lose their mobile device while the device is on or connected, let's say a hotel robbery or something. Um, then the attackers get full access to the machine and may have access to corporate network for a week, right? I've seen this become a debate, by the way, Chris. This is a big debate in some circles. Some folks are like, no, well, every 24 hours is solid. I think that's a great idea. Others come back and say, just like you said a moment ago, Chris, that's a bit excessive. Maybe, you know, once every 30 days or once every 15 days, bi-weekly or whatever. Um, again, it depends on your risk appetite. It also uh, depends on many variables. And if you ever are, are curious about it, Chris, Maybe you should have a conversation with your security team and just see where, they, where their minds are at when it comes to this policy. I think it makes you somewhat uh, you know, open to uh, MFA fatigue attacks or MFA bombing because people just become so complacent with hitting confirm, hitting continue uh, with their, you know, their token-based MFA on their phone. Um, you know, I think they're, they're just going to, oh, it's probably my you know, laptop again. My email needs to be logged in, so confirm. So I don't know. I, I, that, where... I don't know. It, it just sort of kind of takes the, you know, I'm thinking about cybersecurity. I'm focusing on it in my job. Um, oh, I got to log in with my phone, pick it up and do it. You're just constantly doing it. I think it make, makes people a little complacent. And that's never good with security. So Khalid writes in, I just found your show recently and I love listening to it. Well, thank you, sir. Um, you guys are talking about possible new ideas for the show. And forgive me if you've done this before, but I think it would be really interesting to go over popular cyber weapons like Eternal Blue, etc. And discuss how those work and possibly some of the history of them. I think people would find that interesting. 
Uh, thanks for all you do for the security community. So I think we did that with um, the phone, the Israeli phone takeover. What was that called again? Pegasus. Pegasus. Yes, we did a deep dive on that. Yeah. I think maybe Khalib's right. I think maybe instead of just doing all doing news stories, we should come up with a couple really good uh, malwares or some some sort of um, thing uh, and do a deep technical dive. Maybe not as as deep as a whole hour, uh, but we could do like a good fifteen minute dive into one. Does there does one come up in your mind that you'd like really like to do? Yeah, that's a, that's that's something I have to think about it. I think that there are some really good ones we could discuss, and yeah, I could we could definitely put together a quick write up and and you know do a, a quick segment, a good segment on uh, on an interesting topic or vulnerability or attack path or a vulnerability class. Um, and we could probably do that, you know, here and there to keep the keep the the, the audience like you know pumped. Um, you know, the thing that we found though is that like if we go too technical, right? <laughs> Some of the audience is like, "Well, dude, that's too much." If we if we don't, then the audience is like, "Hey, we want more of that." So we kind of need to find a medium, and I think we'll figure that out, Chris. Maybe like a segment type of thing we we'll do, um, you know, by episode or 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 maybe once a once a month or something. Sure, sure. Uriel writes in, I found your podcast last year and I've been listening to it ever since. My question is, I use Microsoft Authenticator for my two-factor authentication codes. I used 1Pass in, as a password manager. I see that 1Password is able to also be used as a 2FA authentication app. Do you recommend to have both 2FA and passwords in one app? I don't know, man. That's a tough one, right? Because if that 1Password account or your workstation laptop is compromised and you have an active session open and the tab is open with, you know, login access to the password manager, you know, the reality is, is that you're putting too much of your security and relying too much on one specific product or tool or service, um, you know, and technically speaking, or even theoretically rather, uh, it doesn't seem like a great idea. I personally do not do that. I have segmentation across different things. So, for example, if I have to use a password manager, the password manager would do what it's supposed to do. It just stores passwords. If I have to use uh, or, or grab an MFA token or a 2FA token um, or something, right, uh, then I would use a separate app for that. So that's just my take. It really depends on, on, on again, you know, where you stand in terms of um, risk and, you know, have you sit down and consider the worst case scenario? And are you okay with it, right? So that's that's kind of where I stand. I agree with you. I take it one step further. I go a little bit more crazy with it. I use different devices. So my password manager is only on one device, and my authenticator is only on a different device. And those devices would never be the same. Now, are they on the same network? Sure, they're on the same network. But you know, for my two FA or my tokens, you know, you always have to have a pin, and you always have to have the face. So. It goes, you know, it's a little bit stronger. So I, I don't think it's a good idea to have, you know, your password manager and your 2FA in the same app. I can understand why you're doing it, but all you need is like is some sort of zero day in that one thing. And, you know, there's all your eggs in one basket. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 maybe my approach is a little bit different with the different devices, but, you know, it's uh, it's worked out so far. Yeah, and back to uh, Uriel, like, you know, just, just sit down and analyze where your position is and what you're using the password manager for, what kind of accounts, and if you feel comfortable, you know, doing what it is that you're you're kind of uh, suggesting or looking into. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, it's really up to you, to be honest, so. So, Hector, Adam from England, he's got two different questions. Let's tackle the first right. one. Uh, we often come across posts on cybersecurity-related Twitter accounts and blogs discussing threat actors from countries like Iran, China, and Vietnam. 
Uh, these sources detail their malware and the entities they target. However, there's notably less information about threat actors from the UK, Australia, or the US targeting others. Um, it's undeniable that these countries have their own nation state hackers and advanced malware. For instance, there are accounts of GCHQ, that's uh, uh, in England, uh, uh, compromising Belgium telecoms, or the joint U.S.-Israel attack on Iran's nuclear facility using Stuxnet. That's a legend, sir. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that is a, a fact that we're putting out there. Uh, certainly not on this podcast. So that we're not putting that out as a fact. Um, why don't we hear about the, their tactics, techniques, and uh, procedures (TTPs) as we do with the others from perceived enemy states? Is it because we only want to highlight external threats, considering allies as non-threats? Or do we perhaps turn a blind eye when allied nations uh, target foreign states or corporations? Uh, well, let me tell you this, Adam. Um, I will give you a little insight into the cybersecurity world. Cybersecurity is how many billions of a dollar's industry? And so if we're talking about attacking other nations, does that put any money in the cybersecurity company's uh, pocket? If we always are talking about Russia and China and Iran and all these countries attacking us, uh, by us, I mean the United States, doesn't that make people want to spend more money on cybersecurity? Oh, I think you're onto something. I think so. <laughs> and I think your boy, Jeff Carr, one of our early guys talking about it, brought this yep. up. Um, so, guys, go back one of our early episodes with Jeff Carr and uh, a great insight and different way of looking at cybersecurity. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff Carr has been in the scene for a very long time. He's worked. Uh, local, he's you know very good old patriotic American, but he also has some good insights as to um, some of the stuff that you know we may have done, and maybe why that stuff is not being published, right? And there's probably a billion reasons why, and, and I'm sure it's beyond the scope of Chris and I, uh, because we're not in media and we're not you know in in, in those positions. Um, but yes, you ha you're absolutely right. If I were to look at it objectively, and let's say I was from somewhere else, I would say yeah, I'm sure the U.S. has their own uh, threat actors and and same with the United Kingdom and, and Australia and and, and uh, New Zealand and so on, right, Canada. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, the stories about China, Russia, other places, North Korea and so on, um, you know, really uh, push that nar narrative that, yes, we are always at risk and we need to spend money. Um, and that, 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 you know, it is well, what it is. But it's not just a narrative. We are at risk. I mean, people are attacking us all the time. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, going, but going companies with, are very weak and not spending the right money. Well, yeah, there's companies that, that are not spending the money or they're spending the money in the wrong way and they're completely ignoring policies and, and their own internal policies and good practices, right? I mean, we could have a whole deep dive discussion into what are the issues that I'm seeing on my end. Um, from the offensive side of what you're seeing when you're right on the defensive side, right, Chris? And so there's, there's a lot of things that are happening that probably shouldn't be happening. And so, you know, um, I think the last thing that, uh, that you know, the, the InfoSec media or whatever you want to call it is going to talk about is, uh, oh, and they do for marketing reasons, but they, they will talk about the, the external threat actors that we're facing. And, and yeah, it, it, pushes, it, it pushes that need for um, investing more and spending more in security programs, right? But we, we do publish, you know, let's say in the United States, we, we put out information about U.S. hackers. I mean, every person I've, I have arrested, either I'm putting out an, an affidavit telling what crimes they did, how they did it, or there's a trial where all the details come out, you know. So, you yeah, know, no. they're, they're, you know wh whether the media picks up on that and writes about it and writes about all the details of it, 
who knows? I mean, it's not as, you know, it's not a headline grabbing as, you know, like the MGM hack and stuff like that, where it's an ongoing in questions um, because, you know, this has sort of already been done, investigated and put out there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that, right? And I, I've seen plenty of those uh, press releases that come out, especially I read my own. That was interesting to, to read. Um, but I, I guess what this what this gentleman is really referring to is like InfoSec Twitter. You know, a lot of what, what comes out of InfoSec Twitter is, you know, uh, threat groups from China, Iran, and so on, Russia, right? Very rarely is there like uh, stories or documentation on, um, you know, hey, look at this U.S. group out of, you know, Kansas City or something. Here's what they're doing, Right. Um, and here's another reality, Adam, and that is that a lot of the folks that you see um, on InfoSec Twitter, for example, that are not a part of media, let's say they're researchers, they probably work for the companies doing some of that stuff, right? You know, something to think about. It's fun. It's a weird, it's a weird state that InfoSec Twitter is in, but I mean, it is what it is. So, so the second question from Adam is uh, is going towards you, Hector. So uh, I will read yeah. it to you. So a question specifically for Hector. Hector, can you talk more about the attack methodology for that you and others in anti-sec, lulsec, and anonymous use to compromise large organizations and government? For example, from my research and not being there in 2011, 2012, I can see that the methodologies that you guys use largely consisted of being given access by others. Google dorking, vulnerability, and port scanning your targets to discover potential entry points for initial access, and then exploiting common OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities in, that include SQL injection, cross-script, LFI, and RFI vulnerabilities. All of the attacks seems use low-level, low-hanging fruit vulnerabilities, such as Stratford making their database externally accessible to the open internet with root user and blank password default available. Can you talk more about your methodologies in discovering and exploiting these vulnerabilities and how you decided to use SQL injection to compromise large organizations and when you had the light bulb moment of realizing this vulnerability was prevalent enough that you and others can make large headlines with it? Also, do you know before the 50 days of LulzSec that Sony, X-Factor, and others had critical high-severity vulnerabilities, or did you kind of make it up as you went along getting lucky? Yeah, no, this is a fantastic question. I think um, I think that we, well, it depends, right? It depends on the era. So, like, when I first, well, prior to the whole anonymous thing where I even, even considered joining IRC, a lot of my work was, well, I would say much more thorough, um, much more targeted, if I had to, if I had a target that I really wanted to compromise, I would spend, you know, hours or days or months, depending on a target, looking for, or first off, identifying what kind of services and technology they're using, um, looking at their employees, looking at, um, you know, what kind of web applications they're running, enumerating DNS, looking at um, anything that would give me kind of a big picture of that target. Um, and that included looking at all sorts of vulnerabilities, where, whether they were low-hanging fruits, like the SQL injections at the time, um, or, or local file inclusions uh, and remote file inclusions, stuff like that. Um, but also looking at um, auditing software that, uh, that they were using that was either custom or open source that, that really didn't have vulnerabilities known at the time, and looking to see if we could identify or I could identify uh, a potential zero-day vulnerability. So prior to Anonymous, that was most of my work. When joining Anonymous or, or, or just hanging out with those people, it, it was still kind of the thing, right? Our methodo methodologies were very different. For example, um, you know, Kayla or Ryan Ackroyd had his own methodology. I had my own methodology. Whoever else were doing whatever they were doing. 
But it wasn't until LulzSec, especially LulzSec, when we were just kind of high speed, hit and run, hit as fast as you can, quick drive-by kind of hacks. Yes, those were definitely um, less involved, quick hits, low-hanging fruit attacks. Can we identify SQL injections in the web applications? Great. Are they using PHP? Fantastic. Or Java? Cool. Can we can we do a local file inclusion or a local file read vulnerability? Um, in the case of PHP, can we do a remote file inclusion vulnerability uh, or, or can we exploit that? You know, yes. So that's, that's definitely something we did use. You also have to understand that while we were kind of speeding up our attacks and doing as much as we could, we would also have people that were either insiders or researchers that were aware of vulnerabilities but did not want to get involved in the uh, black hat activity. And they would just provide us the vulnerabilities for us to kind of engage. So it was a mix of all of that. And low-hanging fruits work the same way they work in 2023. They worked back then in 2011, 2012, and even before that. So, um, yeah. Now, if, if you were to ask me, hey, Hector, what's your methodology now? Well, methodology now is very similar to um, how I used to do it pre-anonymous. Um, I'm trying to identify. Well, there's always going to be separate phases, right? Um, phase one is uh, uh, discovery and, and reconnaissance, information gathering. I'm trying to see um, what the target, or in this case, my, my customers, have in terms of assets, you know, what kind of DNS records are they hosting? What kind of SSL certificates do they have published? What kind of assets do they have that that are accessible? Do they own any IPs and have IPs registered to them? You take all of that, you visualize this base, this this big attack map or this asset map, and then you start to look for services that you can start enumerating, and then of course um, identifying potential exploits or vulnerabilities rather. And then if you're finding services that don't have any known CVEs or, or exploits. Then, of course, you download, deploy, and then you start to audit that service or software. So, um, yeah. So back then, we definitely made use of low-hanging fruits for quick hit-and-run hacks. And then now my methodology is obviously different. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. So Adam had one last question for you, Hector. Yeah. Would you also agree that you and the groups you founded indirectly or directly contributed to the rise in bug bounty programs for web application security? If you look at the timeline after 2011-2012 craziness, bug bounties and web application hacking rose in popularity. What do you what do you think about that? Did you cause bug bounties to blow up? No, I would definitely never take credit <laughs> for something that I didn't personally like set up, right? But I would say that because of that era and, and big shout out to Adam here because I think that's that's a really good question. That's a great question. Yes, <laughs> in fact, a great question. I, I do believe that our activities definitely spurred interest in either bug bounties and or the security industry itself really blew up. If you look at the timeline, if you look at how much money was being invested into cybersecurity, um, it seems like it really blew up after 2011. You know, part of that was us. Part of that was other hacking groups that became very well known and were participating in and all sorts of different hacktivist operations. So in a funny way, I know the security industry, not all of it, you know, accepts me still, um, you know, but in a funny way, uh, the the crappy stuff that I was doing back then, you know, probably built a bunch of careers. And I definitely see that, you know, and I'm very happy that at least one good thing came out of it. I'm glad that it wasn't a complete disaster. And I'm glad that it, it just didn't lead to 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 really terrible things happening. And or, and or, you know, turning the cybersecurity industry into a joke or something. Um, so I'm glad that things have changed and, and, and we're in a much better place than we were 10, 12 years ago. Two good things. You and I are friends. No, that's right. Of course. Absolutely. Joe writes, 
Dragon's Hemorrhoid here. Well, thank you, Joe, <laughs> for your shout-out to Dragon's Hemorrhoid. I was wondering what you guys' opinion are on Google certs. They're super inexpensive, but I don't know if I could land a job with only Google certs. Joe, we've talked about this many, many times. I think Google certs are a great start. It shows your enthusiasm for, for getting into the cybersecurity. It shows that your willingness to invest time in yourself. You're, it shows that you're able to educate yourself by using these cert, getting these certs. Um, I think they're a great start. I think they're a great start for someone that, you know, wants to get into cybersecurity, that's interested, and this is a good measurement of, well, you know, you make it all the way through these certs, um, then you really are dedicated to, to get into the field. Hector, what do you think about Google certs? I agree 100%. The cool thing about certs is that they may not guarantee you a job, but when you're interviewing, you're going through the process, you're meeting with HR, what some of these folks are looking at, because remember, at some point, you're going to have to see so or somebody is going to sign off on you. They're looking at your resume. They're looking at your CV. They're looking at your background. If you have a GitHub repository with some tools you wrote, they're looking at all these things and saying, wow, this person has taken the time and they've made the effort to become certified through this specific program or multiple programs. And we're going to have to go with the assumption that at the very least, they understand core security concepts, concepts that we need within our organization. Because we, and this is this is assuming that the organization doesn't want to train anyone, right? And we need someone that at the very least understands these concepts because we want them to come in and go straight to work. We're not probably in a position to invest another six months in training for this person. So um, I think that they don't hurt. I think you should definitely go ahead with it. It may not guarantee you a job, but it's going to really take you much further than if you didn't have these certs. And, you know, depending on the industry, and this is, this is a, a heated debate in the industry, right? Because some folks are completely four certifications. And when you look at their names on LinkedIn, they have 15 <laughs> certifications listed under the title. And they had a SANS course, and they have a, a, a SpectreOps course, and they have all this stuff. And you look at them like, okay. Um, and then you have others that don't. I don't I don't really have any certs. And I, I think just just out of, just for the sake of like bonding with the audience, what we could probably do is do a cert together. I'll gladly do it with you. Maybe we could do a little Zoom session once a month or something. And we'll just target a, a certification. I'm not sure which one yet. But yeah, just just to just at least my personal opinion is they don't hurt. And if you want to get a job in the industry, you know, you want any positive to help you move forward. Hector, those are great things and great answers to a lot of these questions. And guys, if you want to reach out to us, it's at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Keep them rolling in. Hector and I love your questions, but a lot of great questions this this week. Appreciate it, everybody. You guys want to support the show, go to HackerInTheFed.com to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise, hoodies, t-shirts, custom orders. It really helps the show, guys. Uh, things, the orders have been coming in good and strong. Uh, really appreciate it. We have international shipping. If you guys want to get something sent overseas, happy to set that up. Um, again, go to HackerInTheFed.com, buy some merchandise and support the show. New episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hector, I've been enjoyed spending another evening with you uh, and look forward to the next one. Yeah, man, this was fantastic. Thank you. Thank, big thanks to the audience for for the grabbing merch and supporting us um, and keeping the show like you know just just going strong. Um, and again, Chris, man, it's always a pleasure. I, I'll tell you that every week we've been saying it every every week for like months, and I'm looking forward to the next one, my friend. So cheers, cheers, friend. 